when people are mindful, the products that they produce actually bear the imprint of that mindfulness. I'm Salisa Steele. I'm Jeff Cobb, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Salisa and I almost always enjoy the interviews we get to do for the Leading Learning Podcast, but they're not all equal. Sometimes we get to talk with someone whose thinking and research has deeply influenced our work and lives, such is the case with Ellen J. Langer, a.k.a. the Mother of Mindfulness. Dr. Langer was the first woman to be tenured in psychology at Harvard, where she is still professor of psychology. The recipient of three Distinguished Scientist Awards, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and the Liberty Science Genius Award, Dr. Langer wrote the international bestseller Mindfulness, as well as The Power of Mindful Learning, Counterclockwise, On Becoming an Artist, and most recently, The Mindful Body. Dr. Langer is a return guest to the podcast, and since I had the pleasure of speaking with her last time, Salisa does the honors in this episode, number 373. They talk about what mindfulness is, hint, it's not meditation, the ubiquity of uncertainty, mind-body unity, attention to variability, mindful contagion, how we never really make decisions, and how our perception of time, of ability, changes what we're capable of. In short, there is plenty of food for thought in this conversation, a feast, in fact. Salisa spoke with Dr. Langer in August 2023. So you are known as the mother of mindfulness and Mindfulness is clearly this thread that runs throughout your work, including your latest book, which we're going to talk about more in a minute. But just to kind of help listeners more fully engage in this conversation, tell us what you mean by mindfulness. That's a very good question, Salissa, because I'm not talking about meditation. Meditation is fine. Meditation isn't mindfulness. It's a practice you engage in that results in post-meditative mindfulness. Mine is more immediate, and it's not a practice. It's so simple that it almost defies belief. Noticing new things. When you notice new things, the neurons are firing, and 40 years of research says that it's literally and figuratively enlivening. But we don't notice new things because we think we know. And so what happens is if you simply notice things about things you know, you come to see, gee, I didn't know it as well as I thought I did. And then your attention naturally goes to it. I, I often, when I'm giving lectures, start by asking people. So I'll ask you, Alyssa, how much is one plus one? I'll, I'll fall into the trap and say two. <laughs> yes, everybody does. That's what we were taught. And usually at that point, then you tune out. I mean, who is this woman and why should I listen to her? I mean, but it turns out that one and one is not always two. If you're adding one pile of laundry plus one pile of laundry, one plus one is one. Adding one watt of chewing gum plus one watt of chewing gum, one plus one equals one. One cloud plus one cloud equals one cloud and so on. And in fact, in the real world, one plus one probably does equal to as a more often as it does. So what you need to do is sit up and pay attention. Is this an instance where one plus one equals two, or perhaps it equals one? Actually, people often don't know that when they're adding, they tend to use a base 10 number system. But if you were using a base two number system, one plus one would be written as 10. So 
you know, the answer to almost any question is it depends. And the way to be mindful is to start off recognizing the um, ubiquity of uncertainty. Everything is uncertain. Everything is constantly changing. Everything looks different from different perspectives. So as soon as you think you know, you're going to be caught off guard probably and find out in some instances you don't know. And this happened to me many years ago. I was at a horse event. Now, what you didn't tell your listeners is that I'm Harvard, Yale all the way through. That's important for this story. So this man asked me, well, I watch his horse for him because he wants to get his horse a hot dog. Well, nobody knows better than I. They could know as well, but not better. Horses are herbivorous. They don't eat meat. The man came back with the hot dog and the horse ate it. And it was at that moment that I realized everything I thought I knew could be wrong. It's very humbling, but it's also very exciting because that means all of the things we think we can't do or that can't be done by others also becomes uh, uncertain. We can't know that we can't. And for me, that's what propelled lots of the work that I describe in The Mindful Body. Well, so let's do talk about that new book a little bit now and, and tell us what prompted you to write this book and you know why the book and why now? Well, there probably couldn't be a better time, but I think no matter when I did it, I would say there couldn't be a better time. It's one, it's one of those things that if somebody is going to help us be happier and healthier, there is there's no better time than the present. We did we've done a lot of research that since my last book, and this is the way that I make people most aware of the work. I want to get it out there because, to my mind, the findings are are very important for everybody's health and well-being. And so this book, it's interesting. This book started as a memoir. And then I decided, no, I don't know. I don't want to write a memoir. Um, and then it became what it is. So there are lots of personal stories in there. And so that was fun for me to write. But I think that when you look at the research that is in the book, um, it, it's, it's self-explanatory as to why now. And that the costs of medical care, if we put into practice some of the things that this research suggests, we, we might not need the medical care that we currently need. I did notice in the acknowledgments where you said that it did start as a memoir, and I found that sort of fascinating. You mentioned that, that it sort of went into an idea memoir, and I just loved that concept, even of this right. idea yeah. memoir. <laughs> yes, but you say the thing is that my ideas are anything but linear. <laughs> So writing an idea memoir became too difficult. And then I just I just write and then people can call it whatever they want. Well, I think that we all personally have an interest in improved health, you know, whether that's for ourselves or for people we love. And there are, of course, also societal benefits to improved health care. But given that this is the Leading Learning Podcast, I want to focus a little bit less directly on the healthcare side of things and a little bit more on some of the implications for leading and or learning that is definitely mm -hmm. there in the work that you do. And I had that leading and learning lens on as I was reading The Mindful Body. And so when I got to one sentence in chapter 10, I sort of felt like, wow, this is perfect. You, you are answering this question. Yeah. And that sentence that I have in mind is that perhaps the primary job of the leader, just as with teachers, is to encourage the mindfulness of those being led or taught. So maybe you can make the argument 
in brief for why leaders yes. and teachers really should focus on encouraging mindfulness in themselves and then those that they are leading or teaching? Well, let me answer in a, a backwards way. Typically, we're using yesterday's solutions to solve today's problems, and that's not a good thing. And the more mindful the leader is, the more they realize they don't know. And when you know you don't know, you sit up and pay attention to other people who, in any particular instance, may know. Everybody knows something. And so we did a study a while ago where we had orchestras perform either mindfully or mindlessly, simply instructed Remember when you played this piece of music and you loved the way you played it, just replicate it versus play it new in very subtle ways that only you would know. And we taped it and then we played it for people and we asked, which performance did you prefer? The musicians themselves and the audiences overwhelmingly preferred the mindfully played piece. Well, it wasn't until I wrote this paper up for publication that I realized how it spoke to leadership. Here we have a situation where we have a group performance where everybody is essentially doing their own thing, but you end up with superior coordinated experience performance. You know, that if everybody is mindful, then everybody is drawing their cues from the same ongoing situation. And so once the leader recognizes that they don't know, and too many think they do know, and then again, they're using yesterday's solutions to solve today's problems, and they're never going to win the race, whichever race they're in, you, you tend to have a different respect for people. You know, lots of my work is about how we become non-judgmental. Everybody says, you know, you shouldn't be judgmental, but then nobody knows how you how you turn it around. Many people say, okay, you know, so you're, I don't know, inconsistent. Clarissa, I'll just let you be inconsistent. But that that never works. If you recognize that behavior makes sense from the perspective of the person who's in doing the behavior, and you ask, well, what sense does it make? Well, you're being inconsistent, I realize, is because you're flexible. You don't like me because I'm gullible. You want me to change until you recognize that that's because I'm trusting. And it turns out that every single negative description we have for somebody has an equally positive but oppositely valenced alternative. And so that leads us to feel differently about people. And when we're leading people rather than think, you know, this person is top of the line and this other person is somebody who I can't trust and so on. When we apply these simple rules, we see, gee, there are certainly moments where even that person we question, you know, if you were a teacher and you started your class and you asked how much is one in one and you had little Janie uh, raise her hands and she says it's one, you know, the way we are now where we think we know you'd put her down and the class would look at her disparagingly and that would destroy her life. Sad story. <laughs> but anyway, in this this scheme, what you would do with little Janie or or big Peter, you know, adults is assume that there's some sense in what they're saying and figure out the sense in what they're saying. And then everybody learns when you make the people you're leading I encourage them to be more mindful. You're doing several things, but probably most important or one of the important things is that when you're mindful, you see opportunities to which others are blind and you're able to avoid uh, the problem before it arises. So everything is going to go more smoothly. You are 
creating an environment where everybody feels good about themselves. And it turns out that when people are mindful, the products that they produce actually bear the imprint of that mindfulness. So, you know, and being mindful is so easy that what happens is now your relationships improve. People see you as authentic, genuine, that you're seen as charismatic. You know, so your relationships, the products are better, and it's good for your health, and it's the essence of feeling good. You know, there's no downside, which is nice. At Tagoras, we're experts in the global business of lifelong learning, and we use our expertise to help clients better understand their markets, connect with new customers, make the right investment decisions, and grow their learning businesses. We achieve these goals through expert market assessment, strategy formulation, and platform selection services. If you're looking for a partner to help your learning business achieve greater reach, revenue, and impact, learn more at tagoras.com services. Maybe you can talk a little bit about mindful contagion, because I found that really fascinating yeah. in the mindful body when you wrote about that. So tell us a little bit about that and what you found out. Okay, well, let me tell you first that when I was writing the book, I had a chapter that I thought was the woo-woo chapter. And I you know, I never report findings that we don't have, but some of them are so strange that I question, because mm, I didn't want to throw out the baby with the bath. There's so much solid information in the book that if this seems too out there, you know, let it just stay out there. But you know that when you're with people, who are mindful, you're going to feel more at ease because they're less judgmental. And it turns out so that in that way, mindfulness is contagious, but it goes beyond that. And this is bizarre. So we gave people index cards to read. Now I did this 40 years ago and the index card would just say something on it. Like Mary had a, a little lamb. Nobody sees the double A. I say, okay, tell me how many letters how many words you just saw. I'll pay you for accuracy. Doesn't matter if I don't see it. Okay. Now, if people are mindful, turns out they do see it. All right. So now we have somebody sitting in a lab and we have somebody working with us, a confederate, and the confederate is going to be mindful or mindless. They're not looking at the person. They're just sitting next to them. And wildly, <laughs> so it seems, when that confederate is mindful, the participant sees the double word. But we, we, we also have a lot of data that I think I also reported here. We have a wine tasting experiment and the experimenter is mindful or mindless. And the question, and these are heavy drinkers who are our research participants. And the question is, how much do they drink? And when they're with a mindless experimenter, they drink more. We have people interacting with kids who are autistic and they're either mindful or mindless. When they are mindful, the children behave, uh, are indistinguishable from kids who are not autistic. So there are many mechanisms for this, but you can't lose by being mindful and people will like you more. And whether you have to speak to them or just be in their presence, I don't know. I mean, the last of these woo-woo studies, we had people in a room meditating and then we had them leave. Then the participant would come in. And the participant is given all sorts of cognitive tests versus 
the participant enters a room that had not just been uh, occupied by people who are meditating. So there's something in the air, it seems, that when you're in that room where people had just been mindful, in this instance, through meditation, your scores are better. So I don't know what to make of it, but it's exciting. Well, it is exciting. And I think for me, one of the implications I was seeing is like, we've always talked about the value of pure learning, for example. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes that gets boiled down to, oh, well, you can learn from their experiences or they can share examples of what's failed or or what's worked for them. And I think that's part of it. But I think there's something in your work here that also just suggests just the fact of being surrounded by others who are actively interested in and mindful right. about whatever the topic is, there's a huge benefit in that to learning. Oh, yeah. And I, but, and I, I think the most important part to learning is for people not to feel mm-hmm. evaluated. You know, people enjoy challenges when mm-hmm. they're playing games. They don't enjoy the challenges when they're in work settings, for example. They're scared. What are they scared of? That heads are going to roll. You know, that somebody's going to think they're stupid and so on. So, yeah. Well, it, you know, th- that actually is a topic I wanted to talk about because I think your concept of this universal attribution of uncertainty, I do feel like has a very particular benefit in the learning situation because adult learners can be afraid to appear dumb or to not know the answer. And so, you know, if we recognize that, you know, no one knows everything for sure, then that can reduce that shame and and maybe open us up to learn. And it's not just that everybody doesn't know everything for sure. Nobody should know anything for sure. Remember, one in one sometimes equals one. That what oftentimes we're afraid to seek help or afraid to show up because we don't know. And people in that situation are making what I call a personal attribution for not knowing. I don't know. You may know. Uh, I better get out of here or pretend. And the alternative to that is a universal attribution, which is the correct one, I believe, in this instance. I don't know. You don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody can know because everything is always changing. Again, everything looks different from different perspectives. And so it it makes you very strong when you're in the face of somebody who acts as if they know. And it's very easy to poke at them and reveal. It's not so nice, but (laughs) to, to show them that, in fact, they don't know. You can either know something mindfully or think you know it and behave mindlessly. When you know it completely, you know, if you're playing golf, people think that what they'd like to do is get a hole in one every time. So be fully expert. But once you get a hole in one every time, there's no game there. There's no there there and you're mindless. So not knowing is actually an advantage, you know, that you could do a crossword puzzle And then you could do it again right after, right? Well, that's not fun because you know the answers or you still don't know the answers either way. (laughs) You know, it's not fun. So fun, what is the essence of this mindfulness is that experience of engagement. And that experience of engagement is going from not knowing to knowing for the moment, not for all time, again, because everything is always changing. And one of the ways we should be teaching people to understand this is to teach conditionally. So you don't say this is, one in one is two. The way to teach that more appropriately would be one in one may be two, one in one can be two, one in one is often two. 
and so on. So because as soon as you think you know, then you're no longer you're no longer there for the way things change. You also make the assertion in the book that we really don't make decisions. Can you talk a little bit about that, the fact that we don't make decisions and sort of this illusion of control? This is maybe a little complicated, but let me, let me try to state it. First of all, if we start by realizing that outcomes are neither good nor bad, all right, it depends on how we understand them. So an example I've used too often, but you and I go out for lunch, the food is good, wonderful. The food is bad, wonderful, I'll eat less. Okay, so for me, it's always a, a winning situation. Okay, so when you recognize, and when people suffer from stress, events don't cause stress. It's the view you take of the event that causes stress. You open it up and take a more mindful view, the stress disappears. All right, so when people are making decisions, they think that what they're supposed to do is a cost-benefit analysis. You know, you see what are the costs, what are the benefits, if there are more costs than benefits, you don't choose this option, and, and so on. But if every cost is a benefit, and every benefit is a cost, and it's all up to you, to interpret that, then when you add them up, they're not going to tell you what to do. So you say, you know, should we go back to that restaurant? I'm going to say whatever you want to do, because I know that if the food is still no good, I'm, I'm going to enjoy your company and not be uh, distracted by eating, or I will be, uh, you know, I'll eat it. All right. So that's the first part. The second, you know, so people think they should be doing these cost benefits. They shouldn't. Now, all decisions are between or among things that are the same or things that are different. When they're the same, it doesn't matter what you decide. And when they're different, as soon as you understand the difference, the decision follows uh, mechanically. So, for example, if I say to you, do you want A or B? How could you know what to, what to want? Right? What, what is it? So you gather some information and you see, ah, A is $50 and B is $1,000. What's the decision, right? <laughs> you mechanically just say B. So I think that when we add all of this together with other pieces, and I, I think it's more persuasive, you know, because I can take more time with it if you read it, that I end up with the, the view that rather than spend our time worrying about making the right decision, instead, we should make the decision right. I, I think that's very profound and very practical, right? I think there's so much time and energy spent in organizations around trying to think through the quote, right decision. It's also that decisions are holding uh, holding the world constant and things are changing, you know. So that's why I say again that everything you're deciding was based on yesterday, which is only going to be partially related to tomorrow. You spend a fair amount of time in The Mindful Body talking about attention to variability and that, that kind of mindfulness. So would you explain to listeners what attention to variability is? For sure. We uh, deal primarily with it with respect to chronic illness and way that we can heal ourselves, but it's true for everything. And it sounds fancy. Oh my gosh, attention to variability. It's just another way of saying mindful, being mindful, noticing change. So, you know, let's say your spouse is always, oh, he drives me crazy. He's always whatever. Well, nobody is always anything. And if you 
you know, alerted yourself even once every half hour that you're with the person. Are they being that way now? You'd see sometimes they are and sometimes they aren't. Right. So we do this with respect to disease, uh, big diseases, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, uh, chronic pain, and so on. And we call people periodically, how are you feeling now? And is it better or worse than before? And why? And three things happen. The first is when you have some chronic illness or even stress, let, let's do it with stress. So people who are stressed think they're stressed all the time. No one is anything all the time. So we call you periodically. Clarissa, how are you right now? And is it better or worse than before? And why? And you, you see, gee, I'm not always stressed to the same degree. In fact, now I'm a little less stressed or a little more stressed. Oh, before I thought I was maximally stressed. No, I wasn't. This is the worst. You know, whatever. And so then you see you, you have some control over it, but what's causing it? So you do this periodically throughout the day, throughout the week, and you find out, you know, you're stressed when you're talking to Ellen Langer. <laughs> well, if that's the case, then the cure is simple. Don't talk to me All right? or talk to me differently. And so we've been using this for the big ones. Now, what happens with lots of chronic illness, the word chronic leads people to believe in the medical world fosters this belief, I think, that there's nothing you can do about it. And there's always something you can do about it. You know, I mean, you know, when, when we didn't have a cure for COVID, just sort of imagine that you're a couch potato and all you're doing is watching television and eating, overeating, okay, which all of us have done on occasion. <laughs> okay, but that's your MO. That's what you're you're doing for, you know, for months on end. And compare that person with an Olympic athlete. Now, I don't have data about this, but just a thought experiment. If both of them got COVID, who do you think would suffer more? So there are always ways, no matter what's wrong with us, always ways we can build up our strength, the other parts of our body then going to be helpful. And then using this attention to symptom variability, you end up curing some of these so-called incurable diseases. And you end up getting along with the person who you thought was always whatever, you know, add your own adjective. You share some um, studies around things like eyesight, you know, which we tend to think of as, as fixed. And this idea of the varying some things and the attention to variability, it seems to, again, if I'm putting the learning lens on this, suggests some ways in which we might be able to outperform our own expectations if, you know, if we're willing to open up and and remove some of our expectations. Yeah. Once we realize that our behavior varies, then it's very easy in some sense. What's making it vary? When am I better? When am I worse? We take cures, seeming cures, I think, too quickly, you know, that people fail an eye chart, whatever that means, and then immediately get glasses and then teach their eyes not to be able to see rather than recognize sometimes we see better than others. Right. I mean, if you were doing this attention to symptom variability, in this case, it would be vision variability. And you notice that, you know, around three o'clock in the afternoon, you don't see as well. Well, then you have choices. You could put your glasses on. You could have an energy bar. That would be my choice. Just a chocolate <laughs> bar would have to be. We could call it an energy <laughs> bar because that's that's the way I'm using it. Or you could take a nap. 
you know, that everything varies. And anytime we're holding it still, we're doing ourselves a disservice. So that's why if you were to have just one mindset, which is the only one you should have, it should be that everything is uncertain. So you get to exploit the power in that uncertainty. And something that I don't think we've brought up yet, and it's probably important, I probably want to know, how do I get from discussions about the illusion of predictability and decision-making and risk-taking, stress to you know, to chronic illness. And what motivates that is that, um, and what's a large part of this book, is an understanding of mind-body mm -hmm. unity. And when you put the mind and body back together, then you recognize wherever you put the mind, you're affecting the body. Wherever you put the body, you're affecting the mind. That means every thought you have, in some sense, is affecting your longevity, if nothing else. You know, sometimes the effects are small, sometimes they're large. But the first test of the mind-body unity was a study I did a long, long time ago, the counterclockwise mm -hmm. study. And just briefly, we took old men to a retreat that we retrofitted to 20 years earlier and had them live there as if they were their younger selves. So they spoke about the past in the present tense. So for them, it was 20 years earlier. These are old men. I'm getting older, so I don't want you, know, but they were <laughs> even older than I. Okay. That without any medical intervention, in a period of time of one week, their vision improved, their hearing improved, their memory improved, their strength improved, and they looked noticeably younger. Not 20 years younger, truth be told, but still noticeably younger. All right. So now lots of the new research is involved with, again, testing the mind-body unity idea. And what all of these experiments show is that the amount of control we have over our health is extraordinary. And most of us are totally oblivious to it. Let me give you an example of just one of these studies. We inflict a wound. Now, you know, the review board is not going to let me really wound people. And I don't want to hurt people either. So it's a small wound, but the procedure would be exactly the same. So you have this small wound and you're in front of a clock. For a third of the people, the clock is going twice as fast as real time, unbeknownst to you. For a third of the people, the clock is going half as fast as real time. And for a third of the people, it's real time. And the question we're asking, does that wound heal based on the time you think it is by looking at that rigged clock or based on real time? And it turns out our perceptions control our hearing. We have people in a sleep lab who wake up, they see a clock that tells them they got more sleep than they got, less sleep than they got, or the amount of sleep. And again, biological and cognitive functions follow perceived amount of sleep. So, so much more is possible than most of us realize. When you're focusing on that possibility in the mind-body unity piece of it, but again, I mean, they're clear learning implications, right? If you, if you, if you think you can learn something faster, you know, then then you can sort of. Oh. Exactly. In fact, if you if you were playing the role of Einstein, so right now. You assume you're Einstein, you mess your hair up and, you know, whatever you and then you approach whatever the problem is. If you assume you're Einstein, my guess is that you'll be able to solve the problem better than just as yourself. 
I know that when I'm in the shower that I don't have any evidence of this except my my the possibility that it's true. But and I'm singing and I'm Barbara Streisand. I can't carry a tune, but I'm now Barbara Streisand or Maria Callas, whoever I'm being. I hit more notes and nobody is within earshot or else I wouldn't be singing. So who knows? But yes, there's no question that we can do more. In fact, we did a study ages ago. I don't remember the details of it, but what we did is we had people do something and then we just asked them to do four more and everybody was able to do it. You know, we we can all do And, you know, in the book, we have lots of studies on fatigue. And what we find is that the context in some sense determines how tired we get. You know, you might have somebody at home who's word processing and, oh, you know, fingers are killing him. He's really bored out of his mind. He's exhausted. He goes home exhausted and now sits down and plays the piano. Oh, it's the same thing, right? Except it's not the context. Okay. So um, we have lots of studies, but the simplest one is if I asked you to do a hundred jumping jacks and tell me when you're tired, most people say they're tired around 67, somewhere between 65 and 70, two thirds of the way. If I ask you to do 200 jumping jacks, now people aren't tired till about 170, 140 rather, two thirds of the way. So we sort of set ourselves up. And I think part of the reason, this may be getting too involved in the weeds here, but part of the reason might be that the structure we use for an activity allows us to get out of the activity and then go on to something else. You see, mindfulness is energy beginning. And I'm having such a good time talking to you, Solissa, that, you know, why should I do anything else? And so I don't get tired. In fact, if you watch me lecture, that most people start off high and then they get down and, you know, but not most people, many people. For me, I just goes up and up. And so you can't shut me up once I get started. <laughs> so now there's a life to be lived, right? How do we, how do we arrange so I can go on with the rest of my life since whatever I'm doing, I'm enjoying so much. So, so we build in an amount of time something should take and then we can easily exceed it. And you can never prove that you can't, you know, science can only show you that if you try something and and it doesn't work, then it doesn't work. It doesn't tell you that it can't work. And if we add that to what I said before about the game of golf, where every time you're swinging the club, you're getting it right, a hole in one, then we see, you know, we don't want to be that expert. We want to keep learning. And so uh, you try something, it doesn't work, you try something else. That doesn't work, you try something else. Because once you've mastered it, it's over. You know, if you think that you want to always be successful, even in a competitive situation, play tic-tac-toe against a four-year-old. You'll always win, but yeah, you know, there's no game there. All right, so implicitly, we know that we like the adventure, we like a little bit of the struggle, the the not knowing and uh, overcoming whatever odds and it's the the process of mastering that we seek, uh, not being the master. Unless, unless your learners are, as we all should be, see ourselves as always learning rather than, ah, oh, now I know it. I want to ask you to talk a little bit about level one, two, three thinking and sort of how we can use that to change mindset. So it turns out that when you see somebody do something, too often we think we know why they did what they did, and we're often disparaging them. 
All right. But if you sat back and you were a little more mindful and you thought of other explanations for that very same behavior, you'd learn a lot more. So let me give just a simple example. Let's say we see a woman drop her cane. All right. So level one would be somebody who, so what? Who gives a damn? (laughs) Doesn't do anything. Level two rushes in to help her, right? Level three person, just like level one also doesn't help, but that's because they're aware that if she can figure out how to pick up the cane herself, she'll be that much better off. All right. So level one and three are doing the same thing. They're not helping, but they're not the same person. And it's always the case that, you know, that not always, but it's often the case. You know, you have people who never read a, a particular magazine, people who read it, and then people who don't read it anymore. Again, one in three, they always look alike, but they're very different. The problem is the people stuck at this level too. They're the ones they think they know. So they say, see the person who's actually more advanced than they are, and they mistakenly see them as that level one rather than level three. And if you saw the world, as uh, if you came up with an explanation for why somebody did something, that even if that hadn't been the reason, you could learn from it and you'd treat that person differently. You know, So there's, again, nothing to lose by that. So we always like to ask guests who come on the Leading Learning Podcast a little bit about their own lifelong learning habits. So talk to us about whether you have particular sources or, or habits or practices that help you continue to learn and grow. I don't, I don't have habits because most habits are mindless. You know, I have, I'm 76. So I have since I'm, I don't know, five years old, always looked for the other side. You know, you say X, I say, yeah, but here's how it could be not X and so on. So I don't have to practice this. It just comes naturally. But, you know, you live a certain number of years and things are going to happen. And for me, you know, they're rare, but when something like that happens, I simply ask myself, is it a tragedy or an inconvenience? And rarely, if ever, is it a tragedy. And so that immediately brings you back to a state of calm. And if you, you know, I like to tell people, trying to show people how to fall up rather than fall down. And so let's say a simple thing. Let's say I bang my car. Okay, so that's too bad. It's going to cost a little money. I'm out of the car. So I get the car fixed, and then I always have them fix something else. Okay, so at the end of this, my car is even better than it was before the accident. And I try to do that with everything, and most of the time it works. Is there anything else that we haven't yet talked about that you would love to have a chance to to share? people might be interested in how I came to the mind-body unity idea Mm -hmm. in the first place. And so there are two fun stories. I was uh, married when I was young, also divorced when I was young, but I went to Paris on my honeymoon. And so I was very, very trying to be all grown up. And we're in this restaurant and I order a mixed grill. Now here's the proof that I am fully sophisticated. On this plate was pancreas. I had never eaten it. The thought of it was making me sick. I asked my new husband, which of these items was a pancreas? He pointed to something. Okay, I ate everything. I'm a big eater. I ate everything on the play with gusto. Now came the moment of decision. Was I going to be able to eat the pancreas? So I started eating this and I'm getting sick, really, literally sick. 
He starts laughing. I say, why are you laughing? He said, that's chicken. You ate the pancreas <laughs> ages ago. Okay, so we, we make ourselves mm -hmm. sick. The uh, other story is not as fun, but my mother had breast cancer that had metastasized to her pancreas, which is the end game. And then magically it was gone. And so how do you account for that? And I think that for me, the mind-body unity idea does account for it and can explain spontaneous remissions. Both have pancreas in both your stories there. Oh, yes. Interesting. I never realized that, you see. Dr. Ellen J. Langer is professor of psychology at Harvard and author of the books, The Mindful Body, Mindfulness, The Power of Mindful Learning, and more. Learn more about her books and work at ellenlanger.com. As I hope you heard in the interview, Dr. Langer is smart, insightful, and funny, and we do encourage you to read her work and think about the implications and applications for your learning business. And so Lisa and I would be grateful if you would rate the Leading Learning Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, especially if you find the show valuable, because ratings help us show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. And please spread the word about leading learning, whether in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a colleague or a personal note or on social media. In the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 373, you'll find links to connect with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks for listening and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast. Yeah.